Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Data highlights inequities in the vaccine rollout. One of the main issues beyond being hesitant or being willing to get the shot is actually knowing how and where you can get it. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's been one of the driest winters on record in the region. We are well short, so we're basically around 50% of where we should be. And the case for reparations and how California is examining that. Plus, remembering a founder of the Black Panther Party. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. New data reveals San Diego's hardest-hit communities are facing barriers to getting the COVID-19 vaccine, and it's more than just hesitancy. The numbers highlight inequity in the rollout. Biotech reporter Jonathan Buzan, along with Andrea Lopez Villafania, filed the report in the San Diego Union-Tribune. Jonathan joins us with details. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me. So your report analyzed the rate of vaccination among different ethnic groups in the county. Walk me through your uh, primary takeaways on that. So one of the primary takeaways was that even if you account for who can get the vaccine, who's eligible in San Diego right now, you still see that people of color are getting vaccinated at lower rates. So essentially, we took a look at the county's data on their dashboard. We did our best to get data on who can get the vaccine right now, people 65 and up, people in the healthcare field. And even when you account for eligibility, you can see that Hispanic or Latino San Diegans, um, Asians are getting vaccinated at somewhat lower rates than white residents, uh, and that Black or African-American people are getting vaccinated at even lower rates. So even when you correct for this question of who can get the shot, uh, the people who actually are getting the shot tend to be whiter than you would expect. 
And these groups are also the most impacted by COVID, having the highest rates of hospitalization and death. Why are they bearing the brunt of this virus? So there are a few things going on there. You know, we know this is a virus where it helps to be wearing a mask, to be socially distant from people. And if you're doing a job where you can't actually be six feet apart, or if you're living in multi-generational households where you have contact with relatives who might be older and more vulnerable because they have certain pre-existing conditions, you know, those are all some of the reasons why we've seen consistently, for example, that about 55, sometimes close to 60% of COVID cases have been among people who are Hispanic or Latino, even though they're only about a third of, of the county. So that pattern of uh, communities of color being hard hit has been pretty consistent over the past year, basically. We've previously talked about vaccine hesitancy among people of color on midday, but it's not the only issue leading to these lower rates of vaccination. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, one of the main issues beyond being hesitant or being willing to get the shot is actually knowing how and where you can get it. And that's been, I think, confusing for a lot of San Diegans of all backgrounds. But, you know, the fact that to sign up for a vaccine appointment, you generally need a computer because you have to go to my turn. You have to go through any of these online systems for the 20 plus vaccine sites that we have. So if you don't have a computer, if you're not comfortable using one, if you have language barriers, so maybe you don't speak English, maybe you speak Spanish or one of the other you know, dozens of languages, especially in our refugee community, then basic information that the rest of us take for granted about who can get the vaccine, even knowing what the vaccine is, and then how to actually go about making those appointments, you know, those, those are all some of the barriers. So technology, language, and there is still, to be fair, there is still some lingering hesitancy among people who are kind of in wait and see mode as far as how these vaccines will uh, affect people. And how do the location of these vaccine sites uh, impact the numbers? So that's one of the things that I think in general, people have said the county has done a, a decent job of. You know, putting in place more than 20 vaccine sites throughout the county, including the Superstation in, in Chula Vista that's being run by Sharp at a former Sears department store. And we stopped by there basically the other week and saw that a number of the people who were getting vaccinated uh, were from Chula Vista, were from nearby that area. You know, of course, you also have people who are trying to make appointments and going wherever they can get them. Uh, but there have been you know, there are several sites in the South Bay. There's a site at Chula Vista. There's a site at, at Tubman Chavez. There's going to be some vaccination happening at the Malcolm X Library uh, this week as well. So the county is trying to create this infrastructure where you can get a shot, you know, closest to where you're at right now, but then you still have to be able to secure that appointment, which not everybody is able to do as easily. But for a lot of people, the lack of transportation is still a barrier to getting vaccinated, right? Yeah, that's that's still a barrier. And you know, even though technically, if you do have a vaccine appointment, you can get a free ride on MTS. You know, if it's a matter of taking you know three buses to get to your vaccine appointment, as as one of the doctors I was talking to for the story mentioned, uh, that's going to be a challenge. So. There are certain groups, the Chicano Federation, for example, has launched a call center to help Spanish-speaking residents make appointments. And uh, they're also offering transportation for people who don't have transportation. Uh, I spoke with Alliance Health Clinic, which 
mainly serves the refugee community as well as low-income San Diegans. They're doing vaccination on a small scale, so we're talking about about 250 doses so far. So they've also been offering transportation transportation for folks who need it. And you know, I think that's one of the things that ultimately is, is also, as you pointed out, a barrier. So there are groups that are trying to help uh, with that piece of things too. And you mentioned earlier those over 65 healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities are eligible for the vaccine right now. Uh, when can we expect people with pre-existing conditions to be added to that list? So the state of California said on Friday that as of March 15th, people who have serious pre-existing conditions as well as disabilities you know, will be eligible for the vaccine. So it, it sounds like we're about a month away from that. You know, if you have hypertension, diabetes, obesity, a number of other uh, conditions that the state has spelled out, uh, you may be able to get the vaccine by mid-March, regardless of of your age. Do you think expanding the eligibility uh, in that way would uh, impact the inequities at all? It should, and it very likely will, because we know that the rates of heart disease or obesity, diabetes, a number of medical conditions, sickle cell, the rates of those different conditions and diseases are higher among people of color. So as we bring in those groups into the vaccine rollout, uh, you would expect to see those groups represented more among who's who's getting their shots as well. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Woosen. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. When it comes to San Diego's weather this February, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is we're looking at one of the driest Februaries on record in a winter that's already behind in rainfall. The good news is that we're one of the few areas of the country that's not being battered with winter storms and freezing temperatures. And that includes places like Texas and Louisiana, which rarely see winter storms. Joining me to discuss the extremes of this year's winter weather is meteorologist Alex Tardy of the National Weather Service here in San Diego. And Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me on again. Now, let's start with what's happening here. How far behind normal winter rainfall are we? Yeah, so here we are in the middle of February, and February is our wettest month on our normals, when you look at state of California or even Southern California, so it should rain in February. Right now, as we stand in February, we're looking at deficits here in San Diego that are three and a half inches below where we should be. So despite the rain we had in late January, we are well short. So we're basically around 50% of where we should be. Why aren't we getting many winter storms? Well, the main issue is the storm track. And before we started looking at this winter, we did expect that we were going to be on the dry side of things. And part of that was because of the La Nina, the cold phase along the Equatorial Pacific Ocean that was forming in the fall. And we figured that would, you know, drive the storms further to our north and east. And also because of the general pattern that's been going on over the past couple of years, storms going to our north and east. And so that's really materialized. And it's not like there's less storms. It's just that they're all passing quite a bit far to our north and they're going into the Midwest and almost completely missing us on the occasion. You know, we've had five storms this year, 
but five is not enough uh, this deep into the winter. Are we heading toward a drought? Yeah, right now we're in a deficit of precipitation. And what that means, the difference between that and drought is uh, we have a long-term deficit basically this winter. So we're entering into a short-term drought. We're not really into a true drought when you talk about water supply shortages or other type of impacts. Now, Northern California, different story. Their drought began last year and they continue uh, to be below average and they're in a true drought in that region. But in Southern California, right now we're just looking at a significant deficit of precipitation. Now, meanwhile, another major winter storm is heading from the midsection of the country to the East Coast. How many storms does that make it in the last week or so? Yeah, it's been it's been several storms, um, minimal three. It really started in about mid-January. So at the time that we saw some significant storms here in Southern California in late January, the storm track really set up and became active across most of the United States in mid-January. And now here we are talking in mid-February, the past couple of weeks, it's really accelerated. Storms are going by to our north but they're carving across Texas, gathering that Gulf moisture and then moving up the East Coast. The other thing that's happened that really changed this month is the cold air out of Canada. Uh, So it's really, we call it the polar vortex or that sort of speak, but the cold air has come down out of Canada, often as it does in February, but it's been anchored. And so when you have the ingredients of an active storm track, the cold air and the moisture out of the Gulf of Mexico in the middle of the country, That's the recipe for really big and messy storms. Why have places like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana been hit so hard by winter storms this year? When the cold air finally decided to come down from Canada and Alaska, uh, and and basically we're taking their cold air. It's been much colder in North Texas and the Midwest than it has been in parts of Alaska. So we're literally stealing their cold air. And so when we actually get that cold air, then you end up in a situation where you're having snow, freezing rain, and very nasty travel conditions like we've been seeing. Yeah, more than 25 people have died from these storms. Any sign of a break coming for these states suffering from storms and power outages? Not really a long-term break. The storm track still remains active. The good news is that we do see the cold air that's really causing all of this shifting to the north, back into Canada. And what about San Diego? Will we be seeing some more storms anytime soon and get some rain? Yeah, it doesn't look like it. So for the month of February, most indications are that the precipitation that we do get would be light, uh, just like what we saw yesterday morning. Light precipitation, it gets us further behind in our deficit. And when we get into the springtime, we could be talking about the development of drought here and even in Southern California, not just Northern California. So the long range outlook for February is is not bone dry, but mostly dry, but much below average. And we don't see much promise in March. Now, I do think though, because of the storm track being so active and coming out of Canada, we will see a couple more storms that are significant as we roll through March. It's just that they're gonna be few and far between. So we're still talking about overall dry conditions. We are looking at a mild trend, too, coming up for the latter half of February where things start getting more mild, um, and and that will really make it feel spring-like. In the springtime, right? Springtime in February. That's what, not what we need. <laughs> I've been speaking with meteorologist Alex Tardy of the National Weather Service here in San Diego. Alex, thank you.
Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The recall effort against Governor Gavin Newsom and which organizations may be giving that effort aid and support have stoked a controversy in, of all places, the Santee City Council. Council members voted to ask San Diego County Board of Supervisors Chair Nathan Fletcher to step down after he suggested the recall effort was being led by those linked with white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and right-wing militia groups. Santee denounced that statement as hateful rhetoric, although reporting by the LA Times has established some of those links. The controversy provoked by Fletcher's comments and the history of hateful rhetoric in Santee makes an odd juxtaposition for San Diego Union Tribune columnist Michael Smolens, and he joins us now. Michael, welcome. Hi, Maureen. How are you today? Very well. Thank you for being here. Where did Nathan Fletcher make these comments in the first place? Well, there was a June 12th remote news conference. It was the anti-recall effort uh, the defending Gavin Newsom. And uh, he joined uh, Democrats, Democratic leaders and office holders across the state, including uh, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, uh, basically denouncing the recall effort. And the theme was uh, twofold. One, that there were extremist groups, as Fletcher mentioned, and, and so did Gloria, linked to uh, the recall effort. Uh, and also they equated it with a coup. There was a lot of backlash initially, uh, particularly on the equating the coup with people, um, even like-minded Democrats saying, wait a minute, a recall is a totally legal process. A coup is not. But they were tying these people to the kinds of people, if not the exact same people, that, that did the assault on the Capitol uh, just six days earlier on January 6th. Now, the right-wing links that Fletcher referenced in the recall effort, they were turned up and kind of confirmed by the LA Times, were they not? Yes, it was interesting because initially, not only were the Democrats called out for, for you know making the comparison to a coup, but also not having any uh, evidence that, of these links and not, not giving you know, any examples and so forth, uh, including an LA Times editorial, oddly enough. Days later, their news staff looked into this and they found uh, numerous links. It's hard to quantify how deeply involved these groups were, but clearly they were involved in, in signature gathering, signing petitions, and even in one case, the, the infamous Proud Boys uh, uh, provided security at one anti-Newsom rally, which makes the Santee City Council action a little more curious because their action came after this news had broken by the LA Times that the extremists were involved. Yeah, what did Santee City Council members say they are joining these rebukes against Fletcher? 
Um, it's hard to say why. Uh, you know, I think that 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 Santee figures that because of their history uh, in recent times and over the decades with racist issues and racism, uh, they felt compelled to call out, well, wait a minute, you know, if we're being beaten up, not them personally, but their city, uh, we should be calling it out elsewhere. Well, uh, could you go into that a little bit more? Santee has been the site of, of recent white supremacist incidents, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, last year, there were two unfortunate incidents within a matter of days of each other. In May, uh, one guy was wearing a KKK-style hood in a grocery store. And, and like five days later, a couple wearing, you know, pandemic facial masks that they had uh, Nazi insignias on the, the mask. That made national news. And that would be embarrassing for any community. But uh, Santee has a history of you know, issues with racism and, and white supremacists. Back in the 60s and 70s, there were KKK rallies and even cross burnings back there. Uh, subsequently, there was skinhead activity. And then there was some, you know, racially motivated violence that the city has tarred the city. So it really, has, its image took a beating and all that sort of came back up last year. And then frankly, again, because the, the city council decided to weigh in on this. Now, why would Santee, uh, with its own history, as you've been just been speaking about, with right-wing extremists and white supremacists, why would it call out someone for criticizing the involvement of those very groups in a political recall? Well, th that's, that's a good question. Uh, as I wrote my column, I mean, one thing that it was guaranteed to do was to rekindle the interest and the reflection on Santee's history. Uh, Santee has tried mightily, uh, including this same council, to get past that. They did a lot. They, they had community outreach. They expanded a community police board in this regard. They put up banners uh, saying Santee is a welcoming place and we support unity. So it is sort of curious, uh, especially when as one council member, the one member uh, who abstained from voting, uh, Ron Hall, he said, I don't see this solves anything. And, you know, frankly, it'll probably create some enemies. So while obviously their action was cheered by uh, certain elements of the community and in the larger political world, it raises the question why they would get do a, an official city action uh, in this case. What's been Nathan Fletcher's reaction to the controversy? Well, he sort of dismissed it saying, you know, the city of Santee has officially lost its mind. He hit back. They they voted for, you know, to send him a letter chastising him and, and calling on him to apologize and to step down as county board of supervisors chairman. Uh, he didn't do either of those things. And he did point out that there was this LA Times article that basically substantiated what he was saying so that they had no basis in calling this, you know, hateful rhetoric because uh, there were facts behind it. Now, you know, it seems like even very local politics is getting uglier, more polarized. Is the potential recall bringing that out in other places as well? Well, you know, you say it's, it's, it's happening everywhere. Everybody wants unity and, and turn down the dial on the, the, the tone. But, you know, it's become part of politics. And frankly, uh, you know, a lot of the Republican Party has to deal with these elements, you know, these extremist elements, because, you know, frankly, they've become more involved in Republican uh, politics. Uh, it is still the party of Trump, even though he's out of office. And he has attracted these groups and, and given them standing, quite frankly, if not overtly encouraging them, which some people believe he has, certainly enabling them and, and sort of casting the stigma off them, uh, even calling them patriots. This is going to be, I think, a problem in the 
recall campaign, assuming the recall qualifies and there's a special recall election later this year, certainly you're going to see advertising along these lines that, that point out extremist groups are involved. I, you know, are they going to be portrayed as the major part of the recall? Probably. Is that the reality? Probably not. But that's politics. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune columnist Michael Smolins. Michael, thank you. Thank you. For African Americans, America has bad credit. As the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said in his I Have a Dream speech nearly 50 years ago, the country has defaulted on its promise of 40 acres and a mule, along with liberty and justice for all. Now the state of California has started a commission to study reparations. Adisa Alcabalon is a professor of Africana Studies at SDSU, and he makes the case for reparations in an opinion piece he wrote for the San Diego Union-Tribune. I spoke with him recently. Here's that interview. California is talking about reparations. Secretary of State Shirley Weber, who was previously a state assembly member for the 79th District, uh, authored Assembly Bill 3121 to study and develop reparations proposals for African Americans. What do you think California and this country needs to study as it pertains to reparations at this point? I mean, what's left to look into? Well, honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot uh, to study. I mean, certainly the data uh, already exists uh, that let us know about, uh, you know, educational advancement, uh, economics, uh, incarceration rates, uh, birth rates. I mean, there are just a number uh, of metrics that we could look at uh, to see that African Americans are still uh, in a state of oppression in in this country. So, you know, I don't know that we necessarily have to study it, uh, but perhaps from a political you know standpoint, uh, that is you know considered a necessary step uh, on the path to uh, truly dealing with reparations. But I am proud of the work that our Secretary of State did, Dr. Shirley Weber. Uh, I hope that the state of California, you know, kind of do right by its African-American citizens, uh, but also serve as a model for the rest of the country, you know, for what, for what can happen. When we have this conversation about reparations, many people think it's just about slavery. Uh, but you point out that reparations would need to address contemporary forms of oppression and everything in between. Can you explain that a bit more? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, enslavement uh, is the original sin uh, of this nation. And you know, the situation that African-Americans find ourselves in today is a result uh, of that Uh, troubled, traumatic history. But subsequent to enslavement, I mean, we had years of Jim Crow segregation, uh, racialized violence in, uh, you know, terrorism really directed towards African-Americans with lynching and uh, sexual assaults were also something that was a pandemic in African-American communities or, or racialized sexual assaults. Uh, so there were there are a number of forms of oppression and discrimination uh, since enslavement that is also a part of the reparations debate, and in fact, that's most significant uh, to the re- reparations conversation than enslavement itself. So, what do you think reparations should be for African Americans? 
Well, I think it can be a number of things. I think it should be a number of things, whether we're talking about housing grants, uh, free public education, or free post-secondary education, free health care. And of course, you know, health care is something that is a right that all Americans should have, uh, but that's definitely one of them. Uh, I think that a targeted affirmative action program uh, should certainly be implemented. Of course, we have affirmative action nationwide, of course, but the primary beneficiaries uh, even of affirmative action uh, are white women. So I think that you know reparations can take and should take uh, a number of forms and really not just one. What role then does social justice play in reparations and why is it so important? I don't think that this country could really move forward uh, and truly be what it has always said it was uh, without actually living up to these ideals of, of social justice. I mean, the United States government and its citizens since its birth have always gone uh, about the world promoting itself in such a way that doesn't really reflect the reality of the people that actually live here, uh, or, lot, or, or at least in this context, uh, African-Americans. So, so social justice is very much a part of reparations. But to add to that, when and if reparations are awarded to African-Americans, there must also be put in place preventative measures so that these kinds of things do not happen again. So it's really not enough uh, to provide reparations without truly creating a just and good multicultural society. So social justice is very much a part uh, of reparations. It's reparations itself, but it's also instituting preventative measures uh, to ensure that we live in a society that we uh, think we should live in, a just society. And reparations aren't a new concept for America. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, it's not. You know, this conversation of reparations for, you know, African-Americans, you know, or reparations for African-Americans is not this pioneering, you know, revolutionary strategy or tactic to address past wrongs, uh, but it's one in a line of reparations. I mean, you know, when we talk about reparations for Japanese Americans for their unconscionable internment in concentration camps during World War II. There has been reparations given to indigenous people of, of this country, not nearly enough, but that, that happened. Even, you know, to, to an extent, Jewish Americans have received, you know, reparations for something that the, the type of anti-Semitism that didn't actually take place here in the United States. So there is a, there is a blueprint for reparations uh, in, in this country, and there's no justifiable excuse to support reparations uh, for other groups and then deny reparations for uh, African-Americans. Why do you think it's taken so long for America to just now begin to talk about reparations? Well, I think the protests of 2020 uh, put the plight of African-Americans uh, front and center in this country. I think that if the pandemic and the protests never happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation uh, today. So I think that's the reason why uh, we are having the conversation. Uh, but hopefully, uh, unlike some of the conversations that we have had, which have been very 
much cosmetic, uh, just kind of scratching the surface, but hopefully this discussion of reparations, you know, will eventually have much more traction. I've been speaking with SDSU professor of Africana Studies, Adisa Al-Kabulan. Professor Al-Kabulan, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you so much for inviting me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Janelle Price, one of the original founders of the San Diego Black Panther Party, has died. KPBS's Amitha Sharma spoke with Price in 2017 about the police brutality and community poverty that spawned the local black power movement in the late 60s. And last week, she spoke to others in the movement about Price's legacy. Trinell Price wore the trademark Black Panther beret almost as a second skin. It represented the antidote to what he had witnessed and lived, with fierce eyes, a strong voice, and a desire to convey with precision what it meant to be black or brown in San Diego in 1967. Price described a time when the city's racial fault lines ran deep. San Diego's a conservative city, and most people outside of the black community here in San Diego did not want any interaction with the people in the inner cities, the people in southeast San Diego, the people in Logan Heights. Price grew up in southeastern San Diego during the 1950s and 60s. Even though the city's racial lines were unmarked, Price said police harassed them if they strayed beyond those borders. If we were accosted by the San Diego Police Department for whatever reason, pick one, we were usually taken down by Father Joe's at the lumber yards, and we were brutalized. You know, we were beaten or talked down to or cussed out. So Price was enthusiastic as a 17-year-old San Diego State student in 1967 when the National Black Panther Party in Oakland asked the Black Student Union at the university to form a local chapter. It allowed me an opportunity to help. The black community. And help, he said, was long overdue. Life within southeastern San Diego was a tale of duality. While it was in the midst of a vibrant revival, coming out with new types of music and new types of dress and things of that nature, it was a very upbeat, robust society. The flip side of this renaissance were civil rights protests, highlighting poverty rooted in high unemployment and substandard schools. There's a lot of social unrest, a lot of disappointment in the black neighborhoods and black communities throughout the United States. San Diego was not any different. 
From the gate, Price said the new local Black Panthers fed the elderly, children, and homeless people. They also started community health clinics. Those programs stemmed from the Black Panthers' strategy to educate, employ, house African Americans, and demand that government treated them fairly. Well, he taught basically the 10-point platform and what it meant. Fellow original San Diego Black Panther Henry Wallace met Price when they were teenagers in the early days of the local party at SDSU. He'd be so studious with his little briefcase. He was a very serious young man. And we just laugh and, and mess with him. Poor health prevented Price from fully reprising that role when the local Black Panthers reactivated in 2017 after Donald Trump was elected president. But current San Diego Black Panther chairman Robert Williams said he still learned a lot about the importance of education and lifelong curiosity, among other things, from just sitting at Price's feet. Trinell Price was key in terms of helping individuals that come to the struggle, as well as community members, recognize how powerful we can be as a collective. I never got to ask Price about the racial justice protests last year following the death of George Floyd under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer, but he had long called for police to reflect deeply about how they interact with communities of color. If they do that, God willing, they'll realize that Everybody has a right to life, liberty. The question is about respect. A lot of police officers think that people in the community should fear them. No man should fear another man. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. A memorial service for Trinell Price is scheduled for this Saturday at 11 a.m. at New Seasons Church in Spring Valley. The legacy of the Black Panthers is also being honored in a graphic novel released last month by author David F. Walker. Walker has written graphic novels about Frederick Douglass as well as Shaft. His new book arrives at the same time as the new film Judas and the Black Messiah, which looks to the murder of Panther member Fred Hampton. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando sat down for a conversation with David Walker. David, your graphic novel, The Black Panther Party, has just come out. What was it that inspired you to write this and to choose to do this as a graphic novel? Well, it's a it's an interesting story. I um, about a, two years ago, I did a, a book on the life of Frederick Douglass, and and so that, in some ways, it started there. But the truth of the matter is, is that I had wanted to do something about the Black Panther Party for for going on thirty years now. And when I had gotten the, the Frederick Douglass deal with 10 Speed Press, I had I casually mentioned to my editor at the time that, you know, oh, I, you know, I've always wanted to do a graphic novel about the Black Panther Party, specifically about Fred Hampton and his murder. And he said, um, you know, I think that's a great story, but there's a bigger story there. And my concern would be, do people, you know, will people understand really the gravity of, of, of who Fred was and what happened to him if they don't understand the Black Panther Party. And that got me to thinking about, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And so I, I shifted gears and just knew like, okay, I'm going to do something about the Black Panther Party as a whole. The book begins with this sense of once upon a time and myth versus reality. Was that one of the key points that you wanted to address about the Black Panthers? It was. It, it was. And, and the more I studied and the more I wrote the book, the more I, I felt that that 
it was crucial to address that upfront. I knew going in that I had to address two or three things. And one was the fact that in sort of our collective consciousness and, and within this larger historical narrative, they exist more as myth than anything else. And then I also wanted to try to address and to contextualize what America was like leading up to the, their formation. Because the, the story of their formation is almost always presented as a, well, they were a bunch of angry young black men who started this militant organization, wanted to, you know, started carrying guns. That's not their origins, right? Their origins go back to everything from slavery to civil war to reconstruction to the great migration, all these things. And if you don't understand that, and if you don't understand the 60s in particular, the freedom marches and the killings of Goodman, Cheney, and Swarner and 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 all these sort of events, if you don't understand that, you're never going to be able to understand the Panthers. What are a couple of the key points that you would like people to come away from this with in terms of how they view the Black Panther Party? There's aspects of this book that really explain where we are as a country today and how we got here. And I mentioned in the afterword, I, I wrote the afterword right after the, the killing of George Floyd, and in the, the protests and the, the violence from the police in the aftermath, yeah, I can say emphatically without a moment's hesitation that I was, I was the person who was not surprised by any of it. And when, the, you know, the events on January 6th, I wasn't surprised by it. And, you know, as I was getting phone calls from friends and family and text messages back and forth, and, and I'm trying to sort of remain calm in my, vo- my armchair historian voice and go, you know, well... If you if you ever read the Kerner Commission report, you would know that this, you know, but people don't know what the Kerner Commission report is. But if you read the book, you'll you'll find out. And, and I think that that's crucial because right now we are living in a time when the old adage is that history repeats itself and we're doomed to repeat the mistakes that we didn't learn from in the past. And we're living it, man. Every single day we're living it. Well, for people who don't know what the Kerner report was, remind them kind of how prescient it was in terms of predicting a lot of the things we're dealing with right now. In 1967, there was a series of uprisings in cities all across the U.S. The vast majority of them were racially motivated. Most of them started in the wake of police brutality. And it wasn't just the summer of 67. It had happened in all throughout the 60s, to be perfectly honest. But 67 was the worst year. It was called the long, hot summer of 67. And in the aftermath of that, President Johnson wanted to know why it happened, what happened, and what could be done to to change it so that it doesn't happen again. And he got a bunch of politicians together led by Otto Kerner out of Illinois. They spent like seven or eight months putting together this, doing this comprehensive study on everything from poverty to the education system, to the medical healthcare system, to law enforcement. And they came up with this really startling document that said America was essentially two countries, uh, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And then it spelled out all the reasons why it was separate and unequal. And it all came down to matters of oppression and racism disparity of in wealth, things like that, all the things that we talk about, all the things that us lefties talk about, right? And, and then it spelled out everything that was going to happen if these issues weren't addressed, but it then also spelled out how to begin to address these things so it didn't happen. President Johnson, to his credit, 
dismissed it all as being a plot by the commies and that somehow the communists had infiltrated the commission and and literally nothing, none of the recommendations in, in the Kerner report were adhered to or addressed, I should say. And and the, the, the interesting thing is when you, like so many people haven't heard of it, right? Uh, came out in 1968. This was like a best-selling book. Like it was published and put out. You can you can get it online for free right now. There's PDFs of it. The, the Kerner report was like, that was it. This is what people were talking about in 67, 68. And that wasn't a lifetime ago. That wasn't a hundred years ago. That was just a little over 50 years ago. It was 52 years ago. So I just find it interesting how few people know about it and how few people understand the impact of what was going on in the 60s and that the answers were there, right? And the problem is, is that every time we're faced as a nation, every single time we've been faced with the difficult things that need to be done, we don't do it. At least if it comes to race, we don't do it. And this goes all the way back to the founding of when, when, when we went from being a colony to a nation, when we declared our independence from, from Britain and the constitution was written, there was an opportunity to address race and the issues of race. And this is in the 1700s and it wasn't done. And there, there are you know people who signed the, the Declaration of Independence and, and who helped draft the Constitution, who said, this is it, slavery and race are the things that will destroy this country. That was, you know, 240-something years ago. And not to make light of it, but it was like, they were absolutely right. Now, in terms of how you depict the Black Panther Party, one of the things I appreciated is you include some things like their 10-point program, which people have probably heard about, but probably fewer people have actually read through it. And this is included in its entirety. Yeah, no, I, I felt like the 10-point program is, it's one of those things you hear about. The Black Panther Party had a 10-point program. It was a manifesto, and it was divided into two parts. There was what we what we want and what we believe. Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale put this together in 1966. And all all of what they wanted and all of what they believed are still relevant today. Of the 10 things, it's stuff like we want an end to police brutality. We want an end to systemic racism. We want an end to poverty. We want better educations. We want fair housing. We want all of these things that we're talking about. This is all the stuff the Panthers were talking about. 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago. Well, one thing that your book also points out, which I wasn't quite as aware of, is how young these people were that were involved in this. And, you know, for somebody who's like 20 to go and read the Constitution to try and find things to support some of the the views that they wanted to project out to the public. I mean, it's it's really interesting how smart and passionate they were at that young age. Yeah, that I, I you know, I, I talked about, you know, some of the more difficult aspects of writing this book, putting this project together. And there was there was no moment that was more difficult than the moment that I realized that that Bobby Hutton, who was killed by the police when he was 17 years old, he was the youngest member of the Panthers. He was the first member that Bobby Seale and, and Huey Newton recruited. The moment that I realized that he that I was old enough to be his dad right now, and I was working on the section of the book that was detailing his murder. And at some point, I realized, you know, I'm I'm sitting here studying the death of a 17 year old kid who put his life on the line for something he believed in for his community, but did he really know what that meant? And I think that that most of the Panthers probably didn't fully know what that meant because 
when you're in your late teens and early 20s, do you know what that means? You know, there's a fire in your belly. There's a drive in your spirit. But the maturity isn't quite there. The, 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 there there's so many things that, that we don't have. And the, once I had that realization about Bobby Hutton, actually, the book became more and more difficult to write. But yeah, that youth, I mean, that's what worked in their favor. And it's also what worked against them. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about your new book. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with author David F. Walker about his graphic novel, The Black Panther Party. You can listen to her full interview on her two-part Cinema Junkie podcast. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.